The following podcast is a Dear Media production. This is Being Bumo, a podcast for the modern parent that wants to be the best version of themselves while being the best parents they can be for their kids. We'll be spotlighting parents and experts who are not only inspiring, but also willing to share with us how it really is. Because as we all know, parenting can be equally as rewarding as it is challenging. We're here to make your life easier, a little less stressful, and help you navigate through this complex thing called parenting. Hi, Boomos. Welcome back to another episode of Being Boomo. Today, we have Dr. Oren Boxer, a licensed clinical pediatric neuropsychologist based in Los Angeles. He is a specialist in neuropsychological assessment to evaluate intelligence, learning and recall, attention skills, perception, motor skills, problem solving, and coping skills in children. Dr. Boxer utilizes evidence-based assessment and treatment that employs the best scientific evidence to allow children to thrive. He shares with us the importance of discovering a child's strengths and weaknesses at an early age and how we as parents can encourage our children to have healthy brain development, whether it be challenges associated with school, academics, emotional, and social development. He shares with us how we can encourage our children and lead them in the right path and tangible tips that we all can do now. With that said, here's our conversation. All right, Dr. Oren Boxer, it's so nice to have you here. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Of course. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yes. So I always like to start off with a little icebreaker before getting into the conversation. I am very curious, what is the first thing you did this morning, right when you woke up? Oh, well, it's my job to... Often it's my job to help get the kids up and get them going. So I have two boys, 10 and 8. And this morning, the conversation was around why he has to try on five or six pairs of underwear before he finds the one that fits just perfectly. So in all honesty, that's what I was doing this morning. Awesome. I mean, I'm sure a lot of parents can relate to that. My daughter, I at least have to fight through three to five different types of outfits before we we find the one. So I can relate to that for sure. Yeah. So let's start off with the basics. A lot of people that are listening to this are obviously parents, and a lot of them are newer to uh, neuropsychology. And you know what you do is very specific. It's pediatric neuropsychology. Um, what is that exactly for someone who is newer to this? Right. So I think when a family just hears the term neuropsychology or a neuropsychologist, it's a little intimidating. Um, and it's not really clear what they do. So I often talk to families about how a neuropsychologist's job is to understand what is expected in a child's development. And when we're not seeing development within that expectation, why aren't we seeing that? What's, what's happening to change the trajectory of that development? And that could be anything from delayed reading or language to, um, difficulty with social situations or a child's irritability. But a lot of families come to me as well just to figure out like how their child sees the world. And I think a neuropsych assessment can really do that for a lot of families, really help them see the world through their child's eyes, which can be incredibly helpful. Yeah, that's actually quite interesting that you say that seeing the world through the child's eyes, because we always assume as adults, including myself as I'm a mother of two, that they just see it as how we see it sometimes. 
And that's not really the case. And I think that's where a lot of frustration comes from in parenting, especially I can imagine as they get older. So do parents usually seek you when they are already facing problems or if they are just trying to just in general get to know a child better or both? Yeah, I would say that I get a range of referrals. Sometimes they come from a teacher, a school, you know, a pediatrician saying, oh, I have some concerns about this child's learning their de- or their development. But some families reach out to me because they think they have a hunch that their child is not really meeting their, uh, their, their expectations, that they're doing really well in school, school is boring. They want to figure out how to enrich their child's lives or how to bring more to their development because they feel like they, ha- they don't have what they need to really you know, achieve in a way that they feel fulfilled. I see. And I could imagine right now, especially during the pandemic and with shutdown and kids not being able to see their friends at school, that there's probably a huge just setback in children with frustration and also just mental instability at this point. Like, are you seeing like a huge shift or anything, a drastic difference since COVID-19? Absolutely. I think that, you know, first of all, the fact that it affects parents so much, you have to assume it's going to affect the kids as well. But kids don't present with this in the same way when it's affecting them. Oftentimes, parents will, re- will report more irritability, uh, that little things set, set the kids off. Sometimes there's more tears, or just their frustration tolerance is a lot lower. And that's a sign of, you know, anxiety or depression or just being overwhelmed by things. I see. So what do you, in that case, like, what do you suggest the parents did? I'm assuming that you, you have different age ranges from like really young children to maybe even teenagers to more so adults. Is that correct? Yeah, I see kids as young as four or five, all the way through um, late adolescence and even some, you know, young adults going to college. But, you know, for the younger kids, it's really important to you know, understand where they're coming from and provide opportunities for them to, you know, sometimes the days are so busy, you know, if parents are at home and kids are at home and parents, you know, have to be the parent, the the professional and the teacher, it's overwhelming. And before they know it, the day's over, it's been frustrating, they have to put the kid to sleep and start over again. So it's important to provide predictable, structured opportunities for a child to share their emotional experience through the day. Sometimes that could be done at the dinner table. So if a family does have dinner together, they can play this game called pits and peaks, or some people call it roses and thorns. But the concept is this happens every single night and you have some little like fluffy or stuffed animal or something that someone holds. And when it's their turn, they talk about the best thing that happened in their day and the worst thing that happened in their day. Mm. And when that person is going, everyone else has to be quiet and listen. So that includes parents as well. And this provides an opportunity for a child to talk about the things that were great and the things that were frustrating, and also for the child to see that the parent had similar frustrations. And that's really important, right? That's important that kids see their parents not as this perfect, you know, model parent that has everything put together, but they are they are also human. They have emotions and they're real. And that's actually something that I didn't know that people called it um, roses and thorns. I just do like the best thing that happened about your day and the worst thing, but that's that's actually um, kind of the similar concept, but we do that at nighttime because my daughter, she's actually my oldest daughter. She's, she's a bit more introverted and she, I don't like to label her as shy, but she's 
it's harder for her to open up. So I always yeah. start off with like, this is something that made mommy really happy. And this is also something that really got me frustrated today. And so trying to model that, um, sometimes she opens up, but I think it's, it's just about like being consistent. Right. And also just showing right. the realness of adults as well. That's right. Yeah. Being consistent and showing that, look, this person, this big person that I idolize and I feel like can make no mistakes actually has similar feelings that I have. Mm. Right. And that's an incredible experience for a child. That's, that's amazing that you preach that to other parents, but I'm a big believer in that. Now you talk a lot about, and I kind of read kind of, uh, of how you talk to parents and families. And I see that you talk a lot about brain development. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And what does it mean to have a healthy brain development for a child, especially for young children? Right. So the brain, there's certain like predictable periods of development that we expect for boys and for girls. Girls are actually born more developed than boys. And I don't know if we ever catch up, I'll be honest with you. So, but girls, you expect certain developmental things to happen. And that usually happens before boys. So if you ever walk into a kindergarten class, if you can remember what that was like, girls are typically sitting in their in their seats and they're pretty regulated and boys are throwing things, fingers up their nose, whatever, like they're they're out of control oftentimes. Um, and that's because that's literally because the, the a female brain is more developed again at birth than the male brain. Um, this is also why girls get taller faster. There's just they're uh, they start ahead. So when it comes to talking about that thing with parents, I try to help them understand, you know, what to look for in their child at certain times. This may sound counterintuitive, but lying is a fantastic sign of development. When your child lies, in order to lie, they have to have like an understanding of their thinking, an understanding of your thinking, and then be able to change what they say to change what you think and get away with something. I'm just Just, laughing here because um, the other day, my oldest daughter lied to me. I think it was her first time. And I was so angry. But at the same time, I was like, you're real smart. You you know what you're doing. So I, I totally understand that. Yeah, it's weird to celebrate that at the same time, be frustrated with it. But yeah, that's something that we'd expect at a certain time. Um, around nine or 10, you typically see kind of more introspection, more deeper thoughts, talking about life expectancy and death, which can be really scary for parents, but it's a very typical part of development. And, you know, socializing, you know, at some point our kids will be embarrassed to hold our hand when they're out in public and understanding that, well, that's kind of what's expected at a certain age. Mm-hmm. So it just depends on what they're presenting with and helping parents understand, look, this is what is, what's expected. This is what's not. And here are the tools to help. I see. So would you say that it's safe to say that there is kind of a general roadmap blueprint that parents can expect within certain, I guess, age development and milestones? Yeah, there, there really is. And this is the assessment can be helpful to kind of get that blueprint out there to present that blueprint and to say, look, all of these things are within expectation. But these things, these things are a little bit different. And sometimes they're strengths and sometimes they're weaknesses. And then helping parents understand how to parent around 
those differences. I'm Kareen Eldor. Ever feel like you're playing small? Well, turn up the volume on my podcast, Share a Voice. Every Thursday, I sit down with the wave makers and game changers on everyone's radar. I'll be sharing inspo and takeaways based on my conversations with disruptors, visionaries, and compelling creatives about how they express themselves in their work. Prepare for tons of mic drop moments and subscribe so that you catch every soundbite. I'm fascinated by the power of feeling heard and taking up space. And I'm amped up about sharing these conversations with you. Parents ourselves, right? We come with our own baggage. We have our own history. We have our own emotions. We have our own trauma that we've all kind of been through. And so it's safe to say that the child will inherently without even knowing and even the parents without knowing will kind of teach them things such as anxiety without them realizing that they're teaching them these things. How do you coach parents to develop or I guess unlearn some of these things and then reteach them in a healthy manner to a child? Um, Anxiety, I would imagine, is something that kids naturally just feel from parents and learn from parents, correct? Yeah, right. So the first thing to consider is if there's a family history of anxiety, then even like the child is born with a predisposition to having more anxious thinkings in in the sense that when a stressful event occurs, they're more likely to catastrophize or to think negatively about that event in the future than to be able to kind of roll with it or just kind of say, hey, it's not a big deal and kind of, you know, handle it in a more adaptive way. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a genetic piece of, you know, what the child just is born with. But also children learn everything by what we do as parents, how we handle situations, not just what we say about them, but how we handle our body, right? They're, they're kind of recognizing what we're doing with our body. I mean, as a parent, you know, like if you sigh the wrong way, your attentive child would be like, what's wrong, mommy? What's wrong, daddy? Right? They, they're so attuned to us yeah. that they're going to pick up on anxiety. They're going to pick up on stress. So modeling it that, you know, in a very kind of uh, structured way in the sense that by talking openly about stressful things in your life and how you managed it or talking with your spouse about the stressful thing that happened in work and how it made you feel knowing that your child is in earshot, right? Mm-hmm. It's probably listening. And then how you managed it in an adaptive way and doing that kind of around your child. So they hear that you have stress and you managed it well is really important. And then again, having that opportunity every day for your child to open up and talk about the things that are stressful for them. Those are really healthy parenting uh, behaviors that can, you know, give the best chance for your child to have good coping skills. I heard somewhere that it's not necessarily about the conflict. It's about how you show and model your children, how you resolve conflict. And that that's is right. something that's incredibly important, especially with just everyone being at home now. It's found that the kids are going to hear the parents fight the partners fight, argue about certain things. Of course, you know, you know, me personally, we try to limit as much as we can, but at a certain time, they're going to hear some, some arguments and things that they probably are not used to. So what I've learned is that it's really important to model how you actually resolve the conflict in front of them as well, if they have listened in. Do you have any tips on that for parents? Because I know a lot of parents, our listeners here they are just worried and stressed out about being the perfect parent and like modeling perfect behavior. Do you have any thoughts on that? 
Well, first of all, there is no perfect parent. I mean, I can tell you firsthand that I know all this stuff and it's so hard to implement it in a daily basis. So like you can go in with the best intentions and still it's hard to do it uh, you know, at a level that is perfect. So don't expect that. So bring the expectations down. It's not going to be perfect. You know, but at the same time, understanding, yes, modeling appropriate ways of handling stress is important. And even if you have to like play up something that was stressful, that really wasn't that stressful, but it might be a good example for your child to hear. And then how you managed it is important, but also displaying of a range of emotions, not just stressful things, right? Show like, you know, partners should be, um, you know, showing love and affection in front of their child too. I mean, I love it when a parent talks about how, you know, their, their partners were hugging or holding each other and the child went, ew, stop it. That's gross. I mean, <laughs> that's great. Right? We want our kids to see that sort of thing too. And they're going to remember that forever when they take that into their relationships or, you know, their experiences later in life. So modeling a range of emotions is important. That's really true. We know how social and emotional this whole piece really plays an important factor, especially for young children. Um, are there any healthy habits at a young age that you could recommend to parents that they can encourage within their kids? Yes. So especially now, quiet time. Downtime is really important. Um, our kids are on the screen, sometimes depending on the school, like six hours or more in front of a screen. And so time off of a screen is really good. And a lot of times, most of our kids go from school screen to gaming screen or YouTube screen or phone, iPad, whatever, right? And so coming up with a structured time where the child has quiet time, and quiet time means in their room, right? Not a timeout, but in their room alone and, and learning how to play during that quiet time. Why that's so important is because during those quiet periods is when our children write their self-narrative. They have self-reflection and they think about themselves and what happened that day. And sometimes they crystallize that understanding of themselves through play. And so that quiet time in a room to allow a child to do that is incredibly helpful, especially with all the screens and busyness that they have right now. That is really, really interesting that you see that because I've noticed that a lot of kids now that are so used to being hyper entertained by these screens are now often saying, I'm bored. Or what should I do? I my daughter says that, and for me, I'm just like, great, figure it out. (laughs) That's right. That's Um, right. That when when they say I'm bored, that's the opportunity to help facilitate like a way for them to learn how to entertain themselves without the screen. And sometimes we have to help them as parents, like with a board game or we do something together. But you know, modeling it so it's not just quiet time for the child, but it's the quiet time for the house and the family, and everyone does something kind of independently. Hmm. Do you have any tip now that we're kind of on the topic of screen time? And as you mentioned, we are in a day and age, especially now with the school shutting down, a lot of learning is through, you know, screens and tablets. Do you have any healthy tips on how to manage screen time? Um, and also how to, because effectively learn through screens, um, are there any like do's and don'ts with that? As far as like managing screen time regarding to school when they're in school? Yeah, school and just for play as well, just uh, entertainment. Right. Okay, so when it comes to school, I have this talk a lot with schools and families. One of the main complaints is that 
you know, the school wants the child in front of the camera all the time. And the expectation is that, well, it's just normal. It's like a classroom. I don't know if you've ever seen your kid in a Zoom class and when the kid's in gallery view, and depending on the school, there's like 10 to some upwards of 20 child faces on the screen in gallery view, plus the camera, the view of themselves. So they see themselves and 20 plus other kids. When's the last time a child was in a classroom and had 20 other children looking at them while they saw themselves at the same time? That is the furthest from normal, right? right? A kid can't even like scratch their nose or pick their nose or like itch something because <laughs> just like all these kids staring at them, right? And so the expectation that they have to be in front of the camera all the time is ridiculous. At the same time, I help teachers understand there needs to be asynchronous learning. So learning off camera and then coming and checking in or setting up time when, the, when there's a lesson plan that they're at the desk in front of the camera clock. But then when there's independent work, there's a separate part of their room where they go and sit away from the camera. They're still on but they're in the back of the room and they're doing the independent work. So the intensity isn't the same. And then they can come back and talk about what they did. And that expectation should be set for the whole, for the whole class. So those are some ideas for in school. After school, it's important to have some downtime off the screen. It really is. Usually kids do that anyways, because they have homework and other things they need to do and reading and such. But then socializing is really important too. And so if that means a FaceTime with a friend, and you can do this with elementary school kids. It's really funny to watch them FaceTime. You know, they're like dropping the phone or they pull the phone <laughs> like this and the child's face is right there. And so, but, but, but that's also important because sometimes they could spend 20, 30 minutes on a FaceTime call with one of their friends just talking about nonsense, but it, it makes them feel great and that they have that connection. And, you know, some kind of gaming, uh, you know, uh, is important, especially right now, because there's a social aspect that comes with that where they can socialize and talk to their friends. But that doesn't have to be Fortnite. There's house party and other apps where they can do board games with friends and, you know, have, have get-togethers that way. That I just discovered house party. I was like, wow, this is really cool. Like, uh, better than seeing people in person sometimes. Because you can see more <laughs> <For sure. things. laughs> Yes. You know, it's kind of going back a little bit, as you mentioned earlier, um, the importance of synchronous and asynchronous. I kind of wanted to plug in here Boomo Brain. I mean, a lot of the information that you've been able to help and guide us as far as what's healthy, what is a good balance, we actually applied it to Boomo Brain. And I have to say, it, it's like magic when you're able to find that fine balance of, yes. you know, utilizing these technology, these tools, but then also allowing them to be on their own and, you know, doing their work on their own. And so I just want to applaud you for helping us uh, really kind of figure out a structure that is a, a great balance between both. So thank you. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I think it's a great way for kids to learn and you guys applied it really well. Thank you very much. Now, um, you know, we're coming towards the end of this, but I wanted to quickly talk a little bit about discipline because it's a topic, a hot topic for a lot of parents, right? And there's a yeah. lot of different types of discipline methods. You know, I always like to say every parent parents differently and has their own style. What are your takes on discipline and is there a right or wrong way? It's such a complicated question. I think that there are ways that have been shown in literature to be more effective and ways that kind of help a child develop better coping skills. And at the core of all of these parenting strategies is the understanding that our children are desperately looking for our attention as parents, desperately looking for it. So. Understanding that 
when we sit down and lecture our child because they had a behavior that we didn't want, we are reinforcing that behavior because we're giving them attention, even if it's negative attention, which if we use our adult brain, makes no sense whatsoever, right? If you get scolded by your boss at work, you're not going to do that thing again, right? You're going to make sure to change your behavior. Children and the relationship to children and parents are different. Even if we're giving the child attention while and it's negative attention, we think we're punishing them, they're getting reinforced. Mm. So as much as we can as parents kind of ignoring the negative behavior or helping the child move into, I guess, like a timeout or a place where they can self-regulate and then coming back and have, you know, moving on from that, but not giving a lot of attention to negative behavior because it does make it worse a lot of times. So you just mentioned timeout, which is something that is an interesting topic. And I think many parents have different views on it. I personally do timeouts uh, for my children. They're very short um, because you see it does the job and it gets the, the point across. But what are your thoughts on timeouts? I feel like timeouts need to be happening not only for children, I think could be could be helpful, but also for parents. For a parent to say, look, I need a timeout. I need to just, you know, I'm getting too upset. We can use our ch- you know, um, child language and say, you know, I'm getting in the red zone or I'm getting in the yellow zone. If you want to talk about like the green to red zones mm-hmm. um, and say, I need a break. Right. So modeling that and then also teaching them the same thing, because it's all about regulating emotion. Mm-hmm. And so a timeout isn't a punishment as much as it's an opportunity for them to self-regulate and then come back and manage the situation. So almost using timeout as just a another word, like, oh, mommy needs a timeout, like as in I just need a break and moment versus you know, like you're getting timeout. Timeout is like the one, like the last straw, like not using it in that context, but more That's right. like, like another activity. Like I just need a timeout for myself. Yeah, exactly. And if you see as your parent, like you just did, if you see yourself shaking your finger when you're saying timeout, it's wrong because then it's attention. It's attention to the negative behavior. We were saying, look, you know, I think you just need to take a little break and, and kind of like think through this stuff. And then when you're calm, come back and talk to me. It's a different kind of feeling. Now, how do you successfully discover a child's strength? I'm really curious about the process of, you know, when they get into Dr. Oren Boxer's office or they have a, a session with you. How do you discover someone's strength, especially for parents that are listening that are trying to figure out what their kids are great at and also their weaknesses as well? Yeah. So, um, and as you can see behind me, I do a lot of games. So like I have my Switch, I have my Mario Kart. We, we do spend a lot of time playing at first. Not only does that develop rapport, but it tells me a lot about how they engage with other people in situations. How do they handle losing? Are they going to sacrifice this relationship with me to win, right? Uh, are they going to cheat? And even fine motor, can they hold a deck? Can they hold five or six Uno cards in their hands? Is this fine motor deficit affecting their writing? And so gaming is a, is a lot of it. But also the assessment really helps to understand where their strengths are. And that is the cornerstone of any good assessment because you have to address the weaknesses through those strengths. And so the testing, I say testing, they're really like games and activities, helps to really bring that all out because all of the tests are compared to thousands of other kids that age who have taken it. So we know, wow, he does this one thing better than like 98% of kids his age all over the country. That's incredible. How do we 
how do we harness that, right? Or exploit that so that he knows he has a superpower mm-hmm. and we can use it to address these other issues. And even though I love talking to parents about this at the feedback, my favorite part by far is talking to the child about it. So at the end of the assessment, I have an hour feedback with the child. And I, that whole hour is meant to empower them and give them the language to not only talk about the things that are difficult for them, but also to relate to other people, understand themselves, what they do so well. So it's almost like sharing them, sharing with them what they're great at and what they're also not so great at. Do you also tell them that as well? Absolutely. And so many parents are really terrified of sharing that with their child. Like, I don't want to talk to my child that they have attention deficit or that they have, you know, reading deficits. And I always tell them, look, your child experiences these deficits or these weaknesses every single day. And if we don't name it and empower them to manage it, they're going to name it and they're going to name it. I'm stupid. And they're going to name it. I'm less than, and they're going to name it all these things that we want to avoid. So let's give them the name and let's help them understand it. And let's empower them to deal with it because they have all these gifts. Can you give me, um, like an example of how you would tell a child, a young child about their weaknesses. I'm just curious about like how that sounds like. Yes. Something that's very common is attention deficit. Okay. Attention deficit. I'm going to get on my soapbox for just a second. It's a social convention, right? It's the sense that like our kids started in kindergarten can't sit as long as we want them to sit in class and pay attention, right? Mm -hmm. That's kind of where it comes from. And so when I talk to about, about kids, I talk about, I usually turn off all the lights. Okay. And then I bring out a flashlight that has a light beam like this and a lantern. Okay. And I say, let's think about your focus as a beam of light, right? In order to do really understand what's happening in school, you need to have your attention like a flashlight. And I show the beam of light on like some math homework or something, right? And I say, this kind of attention really, really helps get your math done, right? But sometimes when you have some attention difficulties, your attention is more like a lantern. And then I hold up the lantern and it lights up not only their math work that's here, but the Nintendo Switch that's over there, the candy that's over here. And I say, when you're trying to focus with this attention, yeah, you kind of see your math, but you're also thinking that you're hungry. And you're also thinking, I want it. When am I going to get on my Switch? And it's so much harder to get schoolwork done that way. But then I talk about the gift. I said, but when you have lantern attention, you're so much more creative. Why? Because you can keep all these ideas in your mind at the same time and come up with creative solutions to problems that other kids can't do who have just the flashlight attention. Mm. Right? And so really, it's It's very empowering. It's my favorite part. It's just watch their eyes light up and there's, you know, they just become empowered by it. It's great. That's really, really incredible. So, my last two questions is how do you empower a child that? maybe having a hard time with social skills, like for instance, and I, I see this quite often in younger children yeah. where they're just not confident. They're a bit more shy. They, they don't like speaking up. How do you empower someone all of a sudden to be almost the opposite of that? Or do you, do you not encourage to be the opposite of that? Do you, do you tell them what their strengths are and just stay there? Like how do you empower a child that has maybe a bit uh, a hard time with social skills? Right. So the first thing I tell parents is I never um, pathologize an introvert, right? There's nothing wrong with being an introvert. 
Um, as opposed to what our society teaches kids, which is like the more extroverted you are, the better, right? It's fine to be introverted. But what I try to find out is what does your kid love to do? What are their interests? Now let's find other ways for them to do these interests, hobbies and things. Because when you go to these other activities, and this obviously has to happen when quarantine is over, when you go to these other activities, you're going to find like-minded peers that enjoy the things that your child enjoys. And they're probably going to have similar personality traits to your child, where they may not be the one that's most outspoken. And these are great social opportunities, right? Mm -hmm. So I encourage parents to actually be more social in those situations and this may make some parents cringe, but like, you know, go to other parents and talk to them when you're picking your kid up from school or like, you know, we, we have to be social to help our kids find new friends. Right. And, you know, enrolling them in different activities so that they can find like-minded peers and realize, Hey, this is my group. Like these kids are the kids that I really like. And then they feel more confident opening up because they see that there's other kids like them. Another fun way to do it is Pasadena and the area around LA, there's all sorts of fun improv groups. And again, all this stuff is shut down now, but in the future and in the past, I have recommended that these kids go into this, some of these improv groups because all the kids in some of these classes are super shy and that's the last thing they want to do, right? But they all become supportive of each other because they know how terrifying it is to go and like practice like improvisation and things like that, right? And so when they're done, they have this cohort they go back to, like patting each other on the back and saying, good job. And they learn to kind of have more, you know, extroverted skills, if you will, or, or tools in their toolbox to manage different situations. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, it all comes down to the parent too, right? Like just encourage totally. them to model that behavior. Um, how about on the flip side, academic? So I'm sure that a lot of parents also come to you for academic issues, whether it be hard, having a hard time with attention deficit, as you mentioned, or having a hard time focusing, or just academic problems in general. How do you empower children and parents that are worried about that? Right. So that's a great question. You know, from a young age, and this is something that's, I think, edifying for parents too, that there's a difference between intelligence and academic prowess or academic achievement, right? They become intertwined from kindergarten, right? And certainly in early elementary school, kids realize, hey, you know, Sally, she is so smart because she's the first one done in reading. She reads the best. Or Timmy, he's the best in math because he gets 100%. He's the smartest in the class, right? So they kind of merge these ideas of academic skills and intelligence. And my job from the very beginning is to kind of tease those apart. So a child can understand, hey, you're incredibly bright. In fact, you're probably smarter than most of the kids in your class, right? But, you know, you, even though you're this bright, when it comes to reading, math, whatever it is, you know, these skills are a little bit lower, right? And here's why. And then I help them understand. And sometimes we have really bright kids and they have great, they do grade level work, but they still feel like reading should be easier, math should be easier because there's still that difference between their intelligence and where they're performing. I see. Right? So like helping them understand there's that difference and then giving them the tools and a plan to help, to help improve those areas. That's really great. And I would assume as kids get older, they, because, you know, at a young age, especially when they're like four to five, education, they're just starting their education journey. But I would imagine as they get older, this is something that they identify a bit more, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And, it's, and parents can start that conversation early on kind of 
emphasizing the effort that they made on the spelling test and not really overemphasizing the grade as much, really showing the kid, look, it's really the effort that you put in that makes a lot of sense. And showing them other areas where they're smart and they do things really well that don't relate to school. Well, my daughter, Chloe, so she's in kindergarten now and she um, brought back home her first test. And so <laughs> if you like do the calculation, it's, it's a C. She got like, I think it was seven out of 10 things, right? And I like, it took me back to like when my parents, like my memories of when I brought home a C and all of a sudden I was acting that way. And I'm like, wait, like, Christelle, you need to stop. Like, it's okay. She's a kindergartner. Right. Um, but it, it took me back to like what I knew and how I, how my parents responded to my grades and my academics and almost unlearning that. And that was my very first experience. So, you know, let's say a child brings home a grade that is something that you were expecting a little bit more of, like, how do you respond to that? Like, what, what do you say in a way where it's encouraging, but at the same time, you know that they could do better? Right. Well, that's a really good question. I think it, it depends on the kinds of mistakes they make, too. So I think looking at it and saying, you know, you tried really hard on that. I'm really proud. And like getting into the details, not just saying, you know, you did a great, did great work. Maybe they solved the problem or they got a question that they were really struggling to get it, really struggling to memorize. And they got it right. You know, it'd be like, whoa, you work really hard on that. And look, you got it right. That was perfect. You know, you got all the credit for that question. And then understanding, like, did they make silly mistakes? Like on the other ones that led to those, mm-hmm. that led to those lost points? And talking about that and, and almost using humor in a way, like, that's, look at you did that silly. It's just so silly. You know, it just, you knew that. Um, and then without, you know, directly instructing and said, you need to pay more attention next time. They'll kind of like, look at it differently and say, oh, you know, I do make that silly mistake sometimes. Let me just pay more attention to it. You know, we don't have to, as parents, we don't have to do that second piece of direct instruction. A lot of times kids are so intuitive that if we kind of like point something out and we make it a fun thing, next time they come across that, they'll remember that and be like, oh, I should pay more attention. Right. Right. Okay. Awesome. That, that was very encouraging for me because <laughs> I was, but it's terrifying how we, how we embody our parents sometimes, you know, it really, it's terrifying. Yeah. It, it is. It is crazy. I always told myself, I'm not going to do anything that they like how my parents raised me and I'm doing exactly the same thing, but you know, I'm aware. And so I think as long as you are aware and, um, you, you know, try to get better from that. That's all you can really do. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, one question or one last question just for our parents that are listening. I'm sure that they are so inspired with all these amazing, helpful tips that you've given us already. But what is, if you had to just give a parent one last tip that are just concerned with their kids, developmental, whether it's social or academic, what is just one tip that you would give a parent right now? I think the one tip would be you can't make your kid happy. That's what we desperately want. We want our kids to be happy. We can't make our kids happy, but we can give them the tools and empower them and the sense of agency so that they can make decisions that lead to happiness. Mm -hmm. So focusing on empowering our children, emphasizing their effort and their strengths, those are things that will develop a better self-esteem and lead to our child eventually being able to make decisions to be happy. That's incredible. 
Thank you, Dr. Ornboxer. If um, our followers and listeners are interested in learning more about you, where where can they find you? Right. So, you know, they can um, go to insightcollective.net or ornboxerphd.com. They can email me or call either one. You know, I'm in Pasadena. I have an office on the West Side. So happy to chat with parents or, or meet with them. Awesome. Well, thank you so, so much. It's very insightful for myself and for all of our listeners. Thank you. My pleasure. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. If you liked it, please take a second to rate, review, and subscribe. It really is the best way to support the show. Also, if you want to see more of us, head over to our Instagram and follow us there at Bumo Parent. And to learn more about Bumo Brain Virtual School, follow us at Bumo Brain or head over to BumoBrain.com. Thank you guys so much for listening and I'll see you guys next week.